Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about Philo of Alexandria. Now, Philo of Alexandria, of course, was a Hebrew scholar, a Hebrew theologian who lived in Alexandria between 20 BC to about 50 AD. So he was a contemporary with Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Christ. Uh, Philo lived in Alexandria, though, which was a hotbed of Platonism. We've talked about previous people who lived before Philo of Alexandria. Astrolobus was one of them. These people championed allegorical readings of the Bible because, of course, the Bible couldn't be taken literally. So when you when you get to Augustine, and Augustine says, you know, when I first read the Bible, everything was absurd until I read it in light of Platonism. People like Philo of Alexandria were the ones to champion, to pioneer a new way of reading the Bible in which the Bible is taken in light of Platonism. So let's turn to some biographers of Philo. And the earliest accounts we have come from the church historian Eusebius. Now Eusebius is writing 260 to 340 AD. So he is late 3rd century, early 4th century. And he talks about Philo and uh, the Christians loved Philo. The Christians were the ones who actually brought Philo to life and preserved his writings because Philo in Judaism was a dead end. Uh, the Jewish philosophers did not pick him up. The Jewish philosophers did not champion him. Philo's works only exist because people like Origen of Alexandria, himself a Neoplatonist in Alexandria, were to preserve the works of Philo in his library at Caesarea. And so turning back to Eusebius, he says, Under this empire, Philo became known as a man most celebrated, not only among many of our own, but among many scholars without the church, but throughout the church. He was a Hebrew by birth, but he was inferior to none of those who held high dignities in Alexandria. How exceedingly he labored in the scriptures and in the studies of his nation is plain from all the works which he has done. How familiar he was with philosophy and with the liberal studies of foreign nation is not necessary to say, since he is reported to have surpassed all his contemporaries in the study of Platonic and Pythagorean philosophy, to which he particularly devoted his attention. So he's a known Platonist, and this is being said by Eusebius in glowing light. Remember, Platonism was in vogue. Platonism was cool. Uh, being associated with Platonism was a good thing. And so saying that, hey, there's this uh, guy, there's this Jew, there's a philosopher who loves Plato and loves Christians, that's a good thing. So Eusebius goes on to talk about Philo's relationship with the Christians and how Philo championed and congratulated Christians who read the Bible allegorically. So what Philo would do, would he, he would turn to parts of the Bible in which said that uh, Moses asked to see God's backside. And he would say, well, this doesn't mean that this is going to be a physical viewing. What this means instead is that Moses was trying to reach God through introspective uh, seeing through your mind's eye properties of God. And since he only saw God's backside, that means he wasn't able to ascend fully to understand who God is in and of who God actually is, God's pure essence, because no man could reach that. You could only reach those lower levels. And that's what it means when it says that Moses saw God's backside. It can't be like a literally seeing God's backside. That would be ridiculous. And he says also, he, he name calls anyone who thinks that God would have those body parts. He says these people are idiots. Um, they're dumb. This is not what the text means. The text means these philosophical notions. 
the text says that it's not good for man to be alone. What that really means is that God in his essence can't have others. God has to be alone because of God's nature, God's simplicity. God can't have like properties and relationships. And so God alone is alone. Man, it's not good that man be alone because man is a created being and is dependent on others, unlike God, who's pure philosophy. This is this is the mindset of Philo. So now we'll turn to Jerome, and he's writing in the Illustrious Lives, and he has a section on Philo the Jew. Now, Jerome was a contemporary of Augustine, so you're thinking late 300s, early 400s, and he's also writing about Philo the Jew, which he keeps praises on. Oh, uh, Philo the Jew came to Rome and uh, talked to the Christians, right? But one very interesting piece of information that he gives us is this proverb among the Greeks, that means the, the, the non-Jews, concerning Philo, he says, concerning him, there is a proverb among the Greeks, either Plato philonized or Philo Platonized, that is either Plato followed Philo or Philo Plato, so great is the similarity of ideas and language. So Philo was a thorough Platonist, and this was recognized by the Greeks. And now it's not sure, if with, within, within Jerome, this looks like high praise. He's saying this is a great thing, this, this, is, this is a great attribute, um, high praise, you're just like Plato. But it's, it's not clear that that proverb was used necessarily in that sense. The Greeks might be actually making fun of this Hebrew who comes to Alexandria and just takes all the Hebrew scriptures and turns it into Platonism. They might say, what are you doing? This is nonsense. Uh, you're just copying Plato. And it could be tongue-in-cheek language that either Plato followed Philo or Philo Plato. Obviously, Plato didn't follow Philo because Plato predated him by centuries. So there is some, some nature, some, some tongue-in-cheek language going on here. But other things to notice is maybe it is praised by the Greeks. Maybe the Greeks say, hey, this is a great guy. Look at these great things he's doing. Um, not all of them. Celsius, of course, makes fun of the Christians for Platonizing the scriptures, not taking the scriptures literally, and adopting Greek concepts, Greek philosophy on, on the scriptures. But notice that they consider him a true Platonist. The ideas that he gives about God, they consider Platonism. So these distinctions that we have between Platonism, Middle Platonism, Neoplatonism, a lot of those categories are not absolute, and it's it's not clear that Plato wasn't teaching everything that's taught in Neoplatonism according to concerning the character, the nature and character of God. Remember, we've gone over Plato's works. Um, he definitely taught ideas such as an ineffable one without predicates. The, the creator God. He's, he's a monotheist. And uh, people are recognizing that when they say basically Philo is teaching Platonism. Their ideas, their thoughts, their, their discussions are the same. It, it's, it's the same theology going on here. Philosophy. So now we're going to turn to a paper called Define Infinity in Gregory of Nicaea and Philo of Alexandria. And his section on Philo of Alexandria starts talking about a historian named Gaiut. You know, Gaiut has what I would say is the correct understanding of Philo and Philo's development of philosophy. And this, this is what the paper writes. This French scholar wrote a thesis about divine infinity in Greek philosophy from Philo to Plotinus, published in 1906. In this study, he defends the view, contrary to Muhlenberg's conviction, 
that Philo was the first to put forward a notion of God's infinity. You know, I, I wouldn't say that Philo would be first to do that, but Philo is definitely a major, major step in the way, a ma major data point. He argues that the Jewish exegete develops the idea of divine infinity and indetermination on the basis of God's unnameability and incomprehensibility in Jewish thoughts. Start noticing these Platonic concepts, these Platonic terms that are being ascribed to Philo. Are these biblical terms, God's unnameability and incomprehensibility? The Greek philosophers Plato, Aristotle, considered the first principle to be determinable because perfection is linked with determination, not indetermination. The Jew Philo was the first to regard the highest principle as infinite, but Gaiot himself concedes that Philo does not use the word infinite for God. Philo does, however, clearly express that God is without qualities, and Gaiot argues that being without qualities implies a being without a limit and determination. Yeah, all we have to do is read the ideas of Philo within his existing works, and we see that Philo is arguing for some sort of concept of divine infinity. I think Gaiut is correct, and I think his detractors are incorrect. I think all we have to do is read Philo and read behind the lines. You don't have to use the exact word in order to express a concept. Because Philo conceives only of qualities that are limited, this entails that God is without limit. Further, because God is incomprehensible and unnameable, he cannot be determined. God's perfection is also beyond every determination and limit. This can be seen, Gaiut argues, in D. Cherubon, where Philo writes that God's nature is most perfect. Rather, he himself is the summit, end, and limit of happiness. On the basis of Philo's statement that God is the most perfect, Gaiut concludes that for Philo, God is infinite. The divine infinity is referred to as perfection infinity. Now, this paper that we're reading doesn't fundamentally disagree with Gaiut. It takes a, like a nuanced, different view, but I think Gaiut is laying down some very clear principles of the Platonism that's taught by Philo of Alexandria. God is incomprehensible. God is pure simplicity. We can't attain to God. And let's pull up uh, Philo's works, and we can start reading that and seeing how he writes about God. But God is the creator of time also, for he is the father of its father. And the father of time is the world, which made its own mother the creation of time, so that time stands towards God in relation of the grandson. For this world is a younger son of God, insomuch as it is perceptible by an outward sense. God's not perceptible by an outward sense. For the only son he speaks of as older than the world is idea. And this is not perceptible by the intellect, but having thought the other worthy of the rights of primogeniture, he also decided that it shall remain with him. Therefore, this younger son, perceivable by the external senses, being set in motion, has caused the nature of time to shine forth and to become conspicuous, so that there is nothing future to God, who has the very boundaries of time subject to him. For their life is not time, but the beautiful model of time, eternity, in and in eternity, nothing is past, nothing is future, but everything is present only. Philo here is arguing for a theory of God's timelessness. God is outside of time. Time is distinction. Time is perceptible. God is outside these boundaries, these restrictions. Here he is on God's incompositeness. He says, do not compare the living God to any species of created beings, but dissociating it with the idea of distinctive qualities God has no distinctive qualities. For this is what most especially contributes to his happiness and to his consummate 
felicity to comprehend his naked existence without any connection with figure or character, they, I say, are content with the bare conception of his existence and do not attempt to invest in him with any form. But those who enter into agreement and alliances with the body, being unable to throw off the robe of the flesh, and to behold that nature, which alone of all natures has no need of anything, but is sufficient of itself, God's aseity, God doesn't need anything outside himself, and simple and unalloyed and incapable of being compared with anything else, God has no predicates, remember, from the same notion of cause of all things that they do of themselves, not considering that in the case of a being who exists through a concurrence of many faculties, he has need of many parts in order to supply the necessities of each of those faculties. God doesn't think, right? And in Platonism, God doesn't, God, in order to think or have ideas or to exist in any traditional sense, you have to have different parts that work together in different uh, natures and, and different ways in order to come together and to, to portray your existence in some way to the world. But God is not like that in Philo. Here's what he writes. But God, in so much as he is uncreated and the being who has brought all other things to creation, stood in need of none of those things, which are usually added to creatures. For what should we say? Should we say, if he's possessed of different organic parts, and he has feet for the sake of walking? But where is he to walk, who fills all places at once with his presence? And to whom is he to go, where there is no one equal honor with himself? And why is he to walk? It cannot be out of any general regard for his health, as we do. Again, we're to say he has, ha he has hands for the purpose of giving and taking, never receives anything from every, anyone. He doesn't have parts, especially body parts. That's one of the big things that Philo points out. It's interesting that uh, in his account of Moses and Moses asking to see God's back, in his allegorical readings, he writes that this, this didn't, didn't actually occur as described. Instead, it's describing this philosophical concept that you need to reach God through introspection, through the mind's eye, in order to understand truly what God's essence is. And the fact that the text writes that Moses was only able to see God's backside, what that tells us is that God cannot be fully conceived. Um, the, the true nature of God is uh, unattainable. We can only see things that are behind God. We can only see things at lower levels than God. We can never attain to the truth of who God is. And that that's what that passage means in the mind of Philo. So go go pull up Philo's allegorical readings. You can find that on earlyjewishwritings.com and start reading through how he treats the Bible, his allegorical interpretations of the Bible. You take a pretty clear passage of the scripture that's writing about something historical, and then you make about these obscure philosophical concepts. Let's go to the creation of man that God, that man should not be alone. We'll just kind of read that because that's kind of funny. And the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Let's make him a helpmeet a helper for him. Why, O prophet, is it not good for man to be alone? Because he says it is good that he who is alone should be alone, but God is alone and by himself being one, and there is nothing like under God, so that since it is good that he who has only has a real existence should, should be alone, for that which is about alone is good. It cannot be good for a man to be alone. So God says, let's make man a helper, and the idea there is, God doesn't need a helper because he's above existence in which helpers are, are meaningful. God, God's essence is alone. It is solitary. It's, it's not, not related to other things. Therefore, Adam, since he is related to other things, needs that helper. That's the idea here. 
He says, God is not a compound being, nor one which is made up of many parts, but one which has no mixture with anything else. For whatever could be combined with God must either be superior to him or inferior to him. This is all Platonism. That uh, these, this idea that if the perfect could change, then the perfect's not perfect. So the idea here is if anything could be added to God, the added things are either superior or inferior or equal. But there's nothing equal to God and nothing superior to him and nothing is combined with him which is worse than himself. For if it were, he himself would be deteriorated. And if he were to suffer deterioration, he would also become perishable, which it is impious even to imagine really bad to think that God could deteriorate in any sense. These are Platonistic values. God needs to be the highest good, and you need to come up with this philosophical system in which this good can't be diminished in any way. Again, these are all subjective evaluations, and he uses this strong language as you guys are just dumb if you even think that this is a possibility. Skipping forward, here's another part in allegorical interpretations. For the images which are presented to the site in executed things are subject to disillusion, but those which are presented in the one, uncreated, may last forever, being durable, eternal, and unchangeable. Philo uses this language of the one. Now, the one is the idea from Plato that, that, that God is the one, the ultimate, the, the good. And the one is often found in Neoplatonism as their default name for God. Of course, Plato has a treatise on the one, which he talks about the properties of the one. And he talks about a lot of these properties that are being talked right here in Philo of Alexandria. Philo is adopting this imagery, this language from Plato. I think he uses a different gender. So I think if we turn to the Greek, uh, it's neuter, I think, in Plato, but it's a masculine in Philo or vice versa, one of the two. But he's still adopting the same type of language when it comes to God. This is Platonic ideas, Platonistic thinking. So let's turn to his treatise on the unchangeability of God. And uh, he, he goes he goes off off the rails on people who thinks that God repents. Oh, it's pretty funny. Here's what he says. Let's now connect what follows with it. The Lord God therefore says, says Moses, seeing that the wickedness of man was multiplied on the earth, that every one of them was carefully studying wickedness in his heart all his days, God considered in his mind that he had made man upon the earth. And then he thought upon it and said, I will destroy man who I have made from off the face of the earth. I actually like his translation here. That's a pretty good translation that God was thinking about this and he saw this and then he, he considers it. I, that, that's pretty accurate what's happening in the story. But here's what he follows up with. Perhaps some very wicked persons, oh, those wicked people, those very wicked open theists, perhaps some very wicked persons will suspect that the lawgiver here is speaking enigmatically when he says that the creator repented of having created man when he beheld their wickedness, on which account he determined to destroy the whole race. But let those who adopt such opinions as these know that they are making light of and extenuating the offenses of these men of, of old time by reason of their own excessive impiety, for what can we what for what can be a greater act of wickedness than to think that the unchangeable God can be changed? That that's that's the pinnacle of wickedness is thinking that the unchangeable God can be changed. Oh, thank you, Philo. And this too, while some persons think that even those who are really men do have never hesitate in their opinions, or that those who have studied philosophy in a sincere and pure spirit have derived as the greatest good arising from their knowledge, the absence of any inclination to change with the changes of affairs. So he's saying all, the, all these philosophers, when they study philosophy, 
that's what they come to. They they try to come to changelessness is the goal and end goal of all philosophers, the good philosophers. He says, with all immovable firmness and sure stability to labor at everything that it comes to them to pursue. The best philosophers try to get have the least change. Oh, great. We'll skip forward to his point. But God is not so easily stated or wearied. Again, there are times when we determine to abide by the same judgment that we have formed, but those who join us do not equally abide by theirs, so that our opinion of necessity changes as well as theirs. For it is impossible for us, who are but men, to foresee all the contingencies of the future, or even to anticipate the opinions of others. But to God, as dwelling in pure light, all things are visible, for he is penetrating into the very recesses of the soul, is able to see with much perfect certainty what is invisible to others, and being possessed of prescience and providence, his own particular attributes, he allows nothing to abuse its liberty and to stray out of the reach of his comprehension. Since with him there is no uncertainty even in the future, for there is nothing uncertain, nor even future, to God. Remember, we already read about God's timelessness. God is above these distinctions of time. Uh, in this eternal light, time would give him creation, would give him attributes, would would give him properties, and he's above all those things. And so for God to repent, this is a huge violation of this notion of God's unchangeableness. It's a violation of him being outside of time, uh, knowing all things. And so this is the height of wickedness in, in Philo, in his philosophy. It's the height of wickedness to be an open theist. Skip it for just a little bit. There's nothing future to God who has the very boundaries of time subject to him. For their life is not time, but the beautiful model of time, eternity. And in eternity, nothing is past, nothing is future, but everything is present only. All right, we're going to start wrapping up. But I I think we get a good idea of Philo, his, his life, his works, his negative theology. God is infinite. God doesn't have parts. God is sim simple. God can't have existence that we, we think of existence because that will give him parts. He has to be himself alone in this eternity, forever, unchanging, e eternal, uh, without, without predicates. This is who God is. This is exactly what Plato taught. This is exactly what he hands down to people like Origen of Alexandria, who incorporates this into Christian philosophy, into Christian theology. And it accumulates into Origin of Alexandria, who is very, very much dependent on Origin of Alexandria. We had a podcast, I think, where we went over the influence of Origin on the young Augustine, in which Augustine often copies and often uh, takes Origin's works, and he incorporates it into his own reading and understanding. He was a disciple of Origin of Alexandria. He had his writings, and Origin was a disciple of Philo. And they're all reading the Bible allegorically because you need to explain away the parts of the Bible which don't actually match your theology. Remember, Augustine says it was absurd until he read it in light of Platonism. That's how they take the Bible. And that's how Philo was able to, at the same time, affirm the, the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, and at the same time affirm Platonism. And he is famous for it, so much so that he is referenced in his biographies as being both the Platonist and being dedicated to this allegorical interpretation. So we'll probably leave, uh, leave this podcast with another quote, another description of God. Philo likes to go in these long paragraphs talking about describing God, God's properties. This is, it seems to be his like true passion. So we shouldn't be, there, there shouldn't be any like question of the philosophy, the, the doctrine of God that Philo taught. He writes this, 
But it's not right to be ignorant of this thing either, that the statement, I am thy God, is made by a certain figure, misuse of language rather than with strict propriety. For the living God, in so much as he is living, does not consist in relation to anything, but he himself is full of himself. All that is God is God. Remember back to Dwezel's book. He is sufficient for himself, He has, and he existed before the creation of the world, and equally after the creation of the universe, for he is immovable and unchangeable, having no need of any other thing or being whatsoever. So that all things belong to him, but properly speaking, he does not belong to anything. This is Platonism. On that same note, Philo takes the I am that I am, and he says that's the equivalent to saying, it is my nature to be, not to be described by name. That's how he takes God's famous giving of the divine name to Moses. But that's Philo, Philo, Philo of Alexandria. Uh, interesting character, very critical to the early development of Christian philosophy. Not so much to the Jews. He is ignored by the Jews, wasn't a very influential in Jewish thought. But the Christians adopted him as one of their own, incorporating his philosophy, his allegorical interpretation into the Bible. And I think through this allegorical means of interpreting the Bible, they were able to bring a lot of Greeks over in from paganism, from, from Platonism, into the Christian folds and get the Christian numbers to swell among the Gentiles. Not so much about the, the, with the Jews. The Jews cared a little bit more about treating the Bible realistically as we read in Origin, that, that they wanted a more literal. They didn't like the Septuagint because the Septuagint wasn't the literal translation from the Hebrew. They uh, affir affirmed other translations. But it is a pretty interesting character. Uh, any questions or comments, put that down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.